Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. We have been spending a long time in the book of Acts. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and we ain't even halfway there, isn't that? Uh, and, and why are we doing this? Like, we're, we're going to continue to be there for a while. The pace picks up as we keep moving forward. But why do this? The book of Acts is so strategically important, and I think kind of spirit-led for us as a church in this season right now, because it gives to us a model, it gives us a template of what the church is supposed to look like. You see the first century church, you see their victories, you also see some of their struggles. We're going to get to that as we keep moving through, and we learn from those things. In fact, the, the Bible is, is, is largely designed in that way. It gives us theology, but if you only look at it as a book of theology, you're, you're missing something. It gives to us the way of salvation, man, that we thank God for that. But the Bible shows us, and you see this in the Old Testament, you see it explicitly in the New Testament. The Bible gives to us the way that we're to live our lives. It gives us a model for how we live, and it gives us a model for how we do life together as a church. So we were supposed to be in Acts chapter 13 today, and I, and I had uh, prepared a message, and we'll probably get to that next week. But today's also a day when we remember one of the ordinances of the church. If you're not familiar with that term, ordinance, in our kind of doctrine as a church, we, we believe that there's two things that Jesus told us to do. We call these the two ordinances of the church, that they're kind of physical practices that are supposed to be a part of our, our worship experience. One is water baptism. And you just saw the video just a few moments ago. We'll, we'll be um, getting the opportunity to be baptized in water in our services next week. If you've not yet been baptized in water and, and you saw that video and you thought to yourself, well, that's probably something I should do, and you need a little nudge, here's your nudge. Because it's an act of obedience. That when God says, once you have made that statement of, of faith to believe in him, the next step is to be baptized in water, and it would be a great privilege um, to celebrate and join with you in that. If you need more information or you want to sign up, stop by the hub or you can jump on our website and get some more information there. The second ordinance of the church, the, the first one is water baptism. The second one is Holy Communion. It's those times when we remember the Lord's Supper. Or sometimes we say we come to the Lord's table. And it's a time when we remember who Jesus is. And, and a lot of faith traditions do this in a lot of different ways. They have a lot of different standards about it. And, and we always read a passage when we get to this. And we read just, I don't know, four or five verses typically when we come to the communion point. It's the, it's the same verses every time where Paul gives instruction into how we should um, share in that time of communion. But we don't always look at the whole passage. And I really felt it, it kind of led of the Lord to look at this passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we get to Acts chapter 18, we'll be introduced to a city called Corinth. And Paul will go to this place called Corinth, and he will start a church. And the Apostle Paul will spend a lot of time there. He'll, he'll spend close to two years in Corinth. He knows these people. He, he's met these people. He's helped them to grow in their faith. And then Paul leaves, and after a period of time, the people in Corinth start writing Paul letters. And they say, Paul, things aren't right here. There's some stuff messed up in this church. There's some unhealthy things that are happening. And, he, and they say, Pastor Paul, can you help us with this? And so Paul writes a letter back to them. And he basically says, he says look, I'm going to come and visit you. But until I can get there, here's, here's some things that you need to hear. And he gives some correction to some of the things that he's heard are not right. And out of that, we get this treasure of, of, in certain ways, how the church is supposed to operate. And one of those places is in the area of What's the church supposed to do when we come to the Lord's table, when we share in communion? And so I, I felt just kind of a sense from the Spirit that we were to kind of dig into this passage, not just the four or five verses, but we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 17, kind of verse by verse, we're just going to talk through this up to verse 34 and, and unpack the context, what, what this was really all about. Now, a couple of things that are probably important for you to know before we kind of jump in here. One is this. This is not like a happy passage of scripture. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Didn't think so. So this is, this, is like a, this is kind of a tough passage of scripture because when Paul writes this, he's ticked. You're going to see this. He's not happy with the church in Corinth, which I think it's important for you to know that as, as, as Pastor Paul wrote it, he was mad. When Pastor Chad preaches it, he's not. Is that okay? Like I don't have an ax to grind. 
This isn't like pastoral sniping today, you know, like when you're preaching, but going, man, I sure hope you're listening. It's not that, okay? But this is God's word. And I think it's important for us to understand this. But here's what I do know. I know that this passage of scripture is for all of us today. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's instructions here for our practical worship, so it matters for all of us. But I, I, I feel really inclined that there's two groups of people that if this fits you today, don't miss what Paul's about to teach us. One is this. If, if you're here and you're experiencing some kind of division in your life, conflict, frustration, disappointment, if you've got tensions with other people, and I know that's probably none of us, but if you have tensions with other people, it'd be really good to pay attention to what Paul's about to say to us here. The second, the second group that I, I hope, if, if this is you, that, that you'll really hear what Paul wants to say, is if you're here and you're spiritually dry today, if, if, you, if you feel like your, your tank in a spiritual sense is empty, like spiritually you're weary or you're tired, Maybe you're even frustrated. Then I hope you'll hear what Paul's about to say to us today. We're going to walk through his instructions. Let's, let's just jump right in and see what he has to say. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to break this big chunk up into three segments. So we've got about 17 verses. We're going to get three segments. And we're going to look at first he talks about the division in the church. Then he gives them the direction that he wants them to have, and then he brings the decision that he wants them to make. So we're going to look at the division, the direction, the decision. Let's start with number one. Let's, let's look at what he says about the division that's in the church. So the first thing we're going to look at is the division. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. I apologize, we don't have the online notes today, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along in your own Bibles or on the screens. It says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you see that Paul's not happy? He says, look, I don't have any praise for you. He doesn't mean that like worship. He means like, I, I can't say I'm proud of you. I can't say I commend you here. If, if you go to the second verse of this chapter, and we won't take the time to read it, but in the second verse of chapter 11, he says, I want to praise you, not like in worship, but say, hey, I'm proud of you. I commend you because, because you've been faithful to what I've taught you. So he says, I have praise for you in this. But when we get to verse 17, he says, now on this, guys, I'm, I'm not proud of you. I don't have anything good to say about you here. Have you ever been in a moment like that when you know you're busted? Anybody? Anybody? That's a tough moment. I mean, I just, I just kind of feel like your, your blood runs cold in that moment, right? And so Paul says, here's the problem. When you, when you come together as a church, it does more harm than good. You ever had one of those meetings where you had hoped it would turn out well and then it just made things worse? Have you ever been to that family Thanksgiving dinner? Can I get an amen? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's these times where you just go, well, that did more harm than good. I hope you've never been to a church service at Calvary like that, <laughs> but don't nod your head. <laughs> <laughs> but there were services in Corinth like that. Paul says, look, when you guys come together for your weekend gatherings, it does more harm than good. Why? Look at, look at what he says, verse 18. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it, he says. Paul was getting information from outside the church. The, the leaders in the church had sent him a formal letter that said, hey, there's, there's unhealthy things happening. And then Paul had some friends. It says it in, in uh, chapter 1, if you go back and read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, that there were some folks in a family. It was Chloe's family, and they had sent him a letter too. Remember, he knew these people. He started this church. He led them to Christ. And they're writing him a letter and saying, hey, Paul, there's, there's some stuff going on that's just not healthy. In fact, you'll, you'll read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that there were divisions in the church. They were literally picking sides on whose team they were on. It got pretty tense. So Paul says, look, I hear that there's divisions, and I love the way he says this. He says that people are saying stuff about you, and guys, like, I kind of have to believe it. I, I kind of believe that some of it's true. And he wants them to know this is a big deal. You, you can't ignore that these divisions are happening. Let me pause for just a moment and say, if they're happening in your life, don't ignore them. 
Now look, what Paul's writing here is to the big picture of the church. And there's times when there'll be big divisions in the church as well. In fact, maybe you have that. Maybe there's someone or something in this church or another church that has caused frustration or disappointment for you. I, I told you I don't have an ax to grind because I, I really feel like God's allowed us to be in a, in, a, in a place of some unique unity right now as a church as he's helping us to move forward. But that doesn't mean that everything's always perfect. And can I also tell you that this isn't just on kind of a macro level, but it's on a micro level. So you may have some divisions in your life or in your workplace or with the people that you lead or the people that lead you. Somewhere there may be that division in your life. Here's what Paul goes on to say, verses 19 and 20. He says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Verse 20, so then... When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's really loaded what he says here. Here's what he's saying. He, he says, look, you come together and you do something that looks like the Lord's Supper. You do something that looks like you're pleasing God. But I can tell you that because of what's going on inside of you, that that ain't what's happening, Paul says. He's saying what's going on inside of you takes away the blessing of what you think is happening in front of you. Your internal attitude about something makes all the difference. And they're coming together and they're saying, it's the Lord's Supper. And God's saying, yeah, but those divisions are not anything I want to be a part of. So Paul's saying, you call it God's, but he doesn't want anything to do with it because of what's going on inside of you. Here's, here's a principle I think is really important. The internal attitude determines the value of the external act. What's going on inside of you really determines the value of what you do. Let's say, let's say you're ticked at your spouse. Now this has never happened in my life, but I read about it. So let's say you're ticked at your spouse, and you know the right thing to do, and you do it, but you do it with a grudge. And when you do it, you let them know, I did this because I love you. <laughs> Was that love? Well, that ain't love. Any bonus points you wanted, you threw them out the door. Why? Because even though you did the right thing externally, you were wrong internally. Does that make sense? Look, spiritually, it's the same thing. Like you can say, well, I'm, I'm doing the right thing outwardly. And God looks and says, yeah, but you're a mess inside. Your motives are wrong. Your heart's wrong. So you can't think that just because you did the right actions, it somehow fixed your heart that you were ignoring or that you refused to fix or you were too stubborn to do anything about. Or, so, so you got to see this. And so then what happens next in this passage is Paul speaks about a meal that they have together. So in the first century church, they would have what they would call an agape meal or sometimes they'd call it, a, it would be like a love feast. And here's what it meant. It was something that was kind of borrowed out of Greco-Roman culture. It was something they did as the church that kind of before their church services, they would all come together for a meal. And so when they would come together for this meal, it was supposed to be a time of fellowship and encouraging one another, and it would then wrap up with the Lord's Supper. You, you would share time in communion together. It was really like just a big church potluck. You ever been to a big potluck? Those can be great things. They can also be scary things. Can I get an Amen. Tell me you've never walked up to something and went, I wonder who made that, right? Isn't that true? <laughs> right, you ever thought that? Okay, so they're having, this, they're having this like big potluck that they would get together, but something's not right there. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Do you, do you see the disparity that's there? We, we don't culturally get this because in, in our experience, when you go to a church supper, you, you may go to like a fellowship hall or you, we have a big atrium where we will do our meals and do this kind of thing. But they didn't have this. When they would meet, they would meet in houses because they didn't have church buildings. They couldn't. And so where they would meet was they would find someone in the church who probably was wealthy because they had a house that was big enough and they would come together and they would meet in this house. And the way that a large house in the first century would have been laid out is you would have walked kind of through a courtyard, and, and you'd get out in that courtyard, which was a big open area, and then you would kind of flow on into the dining area, which was much smaller. So here's where your issue happens. The dining area was the best seats in the house. Guess who got the best seats in the house? The people that were there first. 
guess who would come first? The rich people. Because the rich people didn't have to work in the same way that, let's just, let's just say, the commoners would have to work. See, the commoners would have this, this certain schedule. The poor people, and many of them who actually may have still lived in, in a certain form of, of slavery in the first century, didn't have the same luxury or the same freedom in their schedule. So the rich people would come early, they'd get the best seats, they'd bring and eat the best food, and they would sit in that dining area, and then when everybody else would get there, when some of them that were poor, some of them that didn't have that same freedom or that same luxury would get there, they would have to sit out in that atrium area. By now, a lot of the good food was gone, and there were insiders and outsiders. Does that make sense? So glad things like that don't happen anymore. And so what happens is you've got this disparity that's happening in the church. It became even worse because during that time, and we read about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about a great crisis they are facing. There was a shortage of food in that part of the Roman world. And because of that, there were people in the church that during that time did not have enough to eat. So understand this. People who were on the brink of starvation would walk into some of these meetings and realize that other people in the church had just had a feast when they haven't had enough to sustain themselves. Can you see the issue here? And so there's this challenge and there's this tension that's there. And I, and I think that when we look at this, this division that was in the church, we can unpack some of the dynamics and see where division comes in our own lives too. Part of what was going on here was just, and we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was just blatant animosity that was in between these people. Let's just call it blatant animosity. They had chosen, there's some people we like, some people we don't like. There's some people who are with us, and there's some people who are against us. And some of it was just subtle, and some of it was just blatant. And they just said, there's just some people I just don't like. And there was irritability, and there was anger, and there was grudges, and there was this conflict, and there was this contention. You've probably seen people that have been in a place like this. There was this blatant animosity was there. And they were picking sides. Like in the church, it had gotten to the place where they were saying, who was the most holy and who was the most right? It wasn't a pretty thing. Then there was also what I would just call oblivious selfishness. I'm sure there were people, probably some of the people that had maybe more freedom or, or more resource, that they would show up to these meals and they would just have a good time and they were just living their lives and they failed to realize the struggles that other people were having. And they failed to realize how the choices that they were making were causing injury and hurt and pain to other people. This happens not just in the first century, but all the time. That we just kind of obliviously go through our lives and we fail to see how the words that we say and the things that we do impact the lives of other people. It's not necessarily that you were trying to bring division, but without taking the time to get the perspective of somebody else, your oblivious selfishness ends up bringing division to a situation. Have you ever seen that happen? Okay, it was just me, but it does happen. Take my word for it. You know what else they had was cultural grudges. It was rich and poor. And those same kind of grudges show up in our world. Status, race. These things are so timely and so tense to where we are right now that you had these cultural grudges that were there. And, and eventually, I, I think it just, it just feeds into personal disregard. Where you just kind of look at somebody and you go, you know what, I just, I just don't like them. Like there's times when you have different chemistry with different people, right? There's different people that you get along with maybe more naturally in a different way. But there's these divisions that came into the church and there's these divisions that come into our lives. And sometimes it's because of pain or hurt or things that people have done to us. Sometimes it's because of the way that we're just kind of brought up or the thoughts that we've had or the experiences that we've had. Sometimes it's, it's pride. Sometimes it's superiority. Sometimes it's inferiority that puts us in a place where we just put these divisions between us and other people. And what Paul's trying to say here is he says, look, there's no room for this in the church. And he says, there's no room for this in your life. Verse 22, he says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you, and watch how strong his language is here, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. 
You see how the church in Corinth just walked into the principal's office? I mean, he's calling them out. And he says, look, I got, I got nothing good to say to you about this. Because the way that you're treating each other shows in that language there that you despise the church of God. Look, some of us think we can just live our lives the way that we want. And some of us just find ourselves in these places sometimes that we can treat other people however we want and that it doesn't have any ramifications. Look, you cannot love the church and disregard people at the same time. People are the church. People are God's creation. Whether they're in the church or not, they have value to God. They matter to God. And you can't say that you love the church and then disregard people at the same time. Those two things just don't, they just don't mix. So Paul has, in these few verses, called the church in Corinth out. Paul, honestly, has probably called some of us out. And he says, look, this is the division that you're dealing with. Now, what do you do? Because you're doing this the wrong way, right? When you come to the Lord's table, when you come to the Lord's supper, when you come to communion, you're not doing this the right way. This isn't just about communion here, folks. This is about a bigger picture of what's going on in their hearts. And then he says, okay, so if that's the wrong way, I got to give you the right way. So this is the second thing we'll look at. Let me show you the direction that Paul gives let me show you the direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul says, Look, you, you need some direction in how this is supposed to go. And he, he tells him, I'm not making this up. Like this came from the Lord. And then I've heard it taught from those that heard the Lord, and they've brought it down to me. In fact, some people speculate that maybe Paul actually received this in a divine revelation. We don't know. But what he's saying is, look, I, I just didn't think of this up. This is from Jesus. He says, this is what you're supposed to do. He says, and we read this just about every time we share in communion. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and don't, don't let this become old to you. This is really important. It says that Jesus took the, well, let's back it up for a minute. Do you remember what night he was betrayed? It was when the Jewish people would celebrate the festival of Passover. Do you remember what Passover was all about? It was remembering that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt, and God came and he delivered them. That's the story that we read in the, in the book of Exodus, that they were slaves. God uses Moses to come and lead the people out of their slavery. It's, it's a powerful story in the book of Exodus, and they, they would remember it every year at a time called Passover. And so that meal, when Jesus is with his disciples, it says he took the bread and he broke it. And when he did, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. We read that and we go, oh, interesting, because that's all we've heard as Christians in the 21st century. But you got to go back and think what they were saying, because this is the Passover meal. Jesus takes the bread, which wasn't a surprise to the disciples because you always did that at the Passover meal. Somebody was going to lead that meal. And at that point, when they would get to that point in kind of a very scripted celebration, remembrance that they would have, somebody would take the bread. It just happened to be Jesus in, there, in the one we read about. But every family, every group of friends that got together, somebody would take the bread, they would bless it and break it, and then what they would say typically in the Passover celebration was something like this. They would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. See, it was this powerful reminder that God had set them free. Except this time, Jesus isn't saying, this is the bread that we remember. He says, don't miss this. He says, this is my body. That deliverance you're looking for, that fix that you need in your life, that restoration that you're hoping for in your life or in the division that you're facing, Jesus says, it's me. I am the one who heals you. I am the one who restores you. I am the one who brings hope and forgiveness and life. He, he's not just doing a, Object lesson here with a piece of bread. He is cracking open history and he's saying, everything you need in life is found in me. That's, that's powerful. Especially if you're facing some kind of division in your life. Because Jesus is saying, and Paul is pointing this out to the church in Corinth, where there is division, Jesus can bring restoration. 
Where there is hurt, he can bring healing. He is the one. And so that's when he, he, he says that about the bread. Then he says this in verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That's a connection, and, and we won't go into it, but it's an Exodus 24. It's a connection right back to Passover again. It's a connection right back to the sacrifice of the Israelites, and they're tying it in. And here's what Paul is reminding them, that Jesus said in his broken body and in his shed blood is the restoration, is the healing, is the hope that you need and that you're looking for. This is key. And, and let me say it in this way. Look, um, some of you are here and you're looking for hope or you're looking for forgiveness or you're looking for answers. Maybe you've looked in a lot of different places. And maybe you've even looked in church and been disappointed. Or maybe you've looked in yourself or you tried other stuff. And I'm just reminding you, or maybe you've never heard it before, and I want you to know that true life is only found through Jesus Christ. And it's not found because you're great or you're awesome or you earned it or you deserved it. It's found because he died on a cross to pay the price. Get this, somebody died for you. And he did it so you could know what it means to really live. And when you, when you get that, when you receive that gift of forgiveness and salvation, and when you surrender your life to him as your savior and as your Lord, it changes everything. It makes all the difference in your life. I had a conversation with a friend not too long ago who, who's, who's, who's kind of brand new to church, and he's telling me about what God has done in his life and the way he sees things differently and the way he looks at life differently and the excitement that comes from forgiveness and hope and joy and purpose that can only be found through Jesus Christ. And have you ever been there? It's a beautiful thing when he does that work in our lives. And if you need that, you don't, have to, you don't have to do any kind of fancy steps or funny stuff. You just have to believe that Jesus is the one. He's the son of God. He rose from the dead. And commit your life to him. We'll talk about this in a little bit. But, but it makes all the difference. But can I be honest with you? I sat there with my friend as he told me what God was doing in his life. He told me about the joy he's experiencing. This brand new peace. A hope and a purpose like he's never had before. And I said to myself, you know, there's, there's a lot of days that I know that's true, but I don't have that same fervor and passion and fire that he has anymore. And I looked at myself and I said, hey, Chad, your, your tank's a little empty. Anybody? You ever, you ever been at a place where you just kind of go, man, I feel so weary? It's not that I don't believe. In fact, I know the, the only way I'm making it is because I believe. But there's just an emptiness. There's a weariness. There's a, there's a dryness spiritually in my life. Look, that's a, that's a place where we find ourselves sometimes. Because we live in a world that um, it's a lot of chaos and a lot of busyness. And the headlines don't usually make you happy, right? And beyond even that, there's, there's just the grime of the grind of everyday life and just kind of wears on us sometimes. And what I need is something that's going to bring restoration. See, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. If you go back to the Gospels, he walks through this whole Passover meal. He walks through his broken body and he shed blood. It hasn't even happened yet, but he tells him, this is what you need to come back to. And he says, do this in remembrance of me because he knows that every so often you're going to need a little something to make you healthy again. Can I, I don't know if this is a great analogy, but it's one that helps me. Communion is like medicine for your soul. Because there's times when I'm unhealthy. And look, communion doesn't save you. If, you. if you take communion, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Salvation comes through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But communion allows me to do a reset. It allows me to, to get healthy again. To deal with the things going on in my life so that I can receive everything that God has for me. Why? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Look at this, or excuse me, verse 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. He says, look, when you, when you come back to that Lord's table, when you come back to that moment, you remembered what Jesus did when he died for you. You remember what he's going to do when he comes again. And it gives you freedom and it gives you hope and it brings you restoration. And it's a beautiful thing. There's a, there's a famous preacher from the last century named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he, he pastored some of the, the most notable churches in the United Kingdom. And he wrote a book, it's kind of a classic, called Spiritual Depression. That's a happy name, isn't it? <laughs> Spiritual Depression. And one of, the, one of the roads that he kind of goes down in the book is he asks the question, why are some of the most miserable people I know Christians? Have you ever known a miserable Christian? kind of look for a different place to sit in church when you're around them, don't you? Nobody wants to be around a miserable Christian. But he says, look, I know a lot of people who are Christians, and they're miserable. And he calls it spiritual depression. And one, one of the angles that, that he brings, and I think it's so wise, is he talks about that as he got to know some of these people, and as he got to dig in, he realized that somewhere along the lines, they had failed to remember what Jesus had done for them. They had failed to really kind of process and think about and receive that Jesus had died on the cross for them, that he shed his blood for them, that he had hope to give to them. And look, if you're here today and you're spiritually dry or you're spiritually far from God or you just feel empty in, in your soul in some way, can I just encourage you, this is not meant to make you even emptier or drier. This is meant to be an encouragement to you. When we get to the Lord's table in just a few minutes, don't dismiss that as just what we have to do and then we'll move on and do something different next week. Take a moment and say, God, I want to thank you for what you've done for me. Jesus, I, I didn't earn or deserve this, but you died to give me hope. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a right to this forgiveness. And yet you shed your blood for me. God, I need your strength and I need your power and I need your restoration in my life. And maybe even to the point where you have to say, God, help me with this forgiveness and with this bitterness. I need your grace why? He told us about the division. He told us about the decision. Here's the third thing, or the, the, the direction. Then the third thing I want you to see is the decision he calls us to make. He kind of brings it to a point of, of, of uh, response here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's intense. He says, look, if you do this unworthy... We read that every time we share in communion. Why? Because if, you, if you've got a place where there's a sin that you know is not right between you and God, something you've got to repent of, don't come to communion and not deal with it is what he's saying here. And oftentimes we, we think of that maybe something we haven't confessed yet or, or something that's not right in our hearts. But take it to the context of this passage. He's, he's really talking about not just that. You, you should. That's right. We examine ourselves. But what if there's division in your life somewhere? Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make it right and everything's going to be hunky-dory by the time communion's done, but you better make sure your heart is right. Does that make sense? Like examine your own heart in this moment. Am I holding blatant animosity or oblivious selfishness or cultural grudges or personal disregard? Why? Because it's a big deal to God. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. See, communion calls us to examine our actions and our attitudes towards God and others. Communion is a chance to take a look on the inside, to take a look on the outside. How's my relationship with God? How's my relationship with others? I need to look at this and I need to make this right in this moment. It's key. It's why we go to the doctor and the dentist. If anybody goes to the dentist just because they want to, I think there's something wrong with you. Why do you go to the dentist? Man, I go every so often because I know I need my teeth cleaned. There's nothing wrong with them, but I know I need them cleaned. I, I know there's something that needs done there because if I don't, I'm going to be sorry later. It's why sometimes I'll take my car to the mechanic, not because there's anything wrong, because I want to make sure everything's right. I need an oil change. I need a tune-up. It's why I do maintenance around the house because I know if I don't, I'm going to have a mess later. 
Communion lets me come to the Lord's table and examine my own heart. It lets me take a good look today so that it will help me to steer clear of what could happen later. What could happen, Chad? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. We are more discerning, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. You know that's a heavy passage, right? He said that because some of you are not in the right place, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have fallen asleep. He says that because some of you have not done this right, it's brought judgment from God in your life as sickness, weakness. And when he says falling asleep, he's not talking about what some of you are experiencing in this moment. (laughs) That's kind of like a little analogy of death. Did you hear what he said? He said that because some of you have let these divisions get out of hand in your life and in the church, it has come to you as the form of punishment in your physical body. That's heavy. Now, don't take this too far, because some of you, the next time you sneeze, you're going to go, it's judgment from God. (laughs) Sometimes you just get sick because a kid had a runny nose. Every time you get sick, it's not judgment. But sometimes judgment can lead you to some form in your life that is not right. Just know this, the state of your heart can affect your physical body. They've done studies that have shown That cynicism, when you're negative about everybody and everything, this was in the journal Neurology, cynicism can literally take years off your life. Hostility makes you more um, likely to have heart issues. The state of your spiritual heart can affect your physical body. So Paul says, know this, this is serious. Deal with the divisions, confess your sins, Make things right. Come to the Lord's table. You don't get to choose everything in life, but you get to choose this one. Come to the Lord's table so that it becomes a place of healing and not judgment in your life. That's why we don't joke around about communion. It's it's a pretty serious thing. I remember being in the seventh grade. Um, I grew up in a church, a great, great church, Warren First Assembly, Warren, Ohio. It's my home church. And uh, we had, we had for, for back in the, the, the day, in the 1970s, we had this just awesome children's ministry that was really kind of unusual for churches in that time. So I grew up going to this really great kids' church where I learned the word of God. Pastor Kurt Dalibo was my kids' pastor. I mean, it was this special time. And so you were there up through like sixth grade, and then in seventh grade, you graduated into big church. <laughs> and I remember it was the first time that I was in big church. I remember this so clearly. I was in big church for the first time when they had communion. And I remember I was sitting there next to my friend Eric, and it's just me and Eric, because I grew up in a church where where we had a choir that would sit up in the choir loft behind the pastor all through the service. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So they'd sit up there. So Eric's parents were both in the choir. My mom was in the choir, and my dad was the assistant head usher. Thank you very much. Which meant that when the offering was done, he slept in the back row. That was how it worked. And so Eric and I were sitting about halfway up, just him and me, and we were totally unsupervised 12 years old. So you know what that means, right? And we were sitting there, and it came time for communion. So the pastor walked us through it, and we got to the part where we would share in the cup together, and we had those little plastic cups of grape juice, and it came to the moment, this is not funny, came to the moment, and Eric and I turned to each other just before we took the, the cup, and we went, cheers, like that. <laughs> Completely true. <laughs> what we were unaware of is that the, the principal of the Christian school in town was sitting right behind us. <laughs> Jane Pitzer. Mrs. Pitzer knew both of us very well. She didn't um, just kind of shake her head and go, those two boys have not been raised right. Nor did she make a note and say, Vera and Barbara are going to hear about this. I, I will be forever grateful that Jane Pitzer leaned up from the seat behind us and stuck her red head right between me and Eric 
and said, boys, this is a very serious thing. She whispered in our ears for a moment things that we will never forget. (laughs) I can tell you that just about every time I stand over there and wait for the communion elements, I still hear Jane Pitzer's voice in my head. (laughs) Not because she tried to make me scared, just because she wanted me to see that when we come to the Lord's table, it is a holy moment. You don't want to come frivolously. You don't, you don't want to come to that loosely because it, it makes an eternal difference. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table today. In fact, uh, we've, we've got folks of our hospitality team and our worship team that are going to help us out. If you're, if you're kind of needing to move into place, I invite you to go ahead and do that now. Those that are going to serve us and those that are going to lead us in worship here in just a moment because I don't want you to miss what Paul says to us. He lets us know so clearly how important this is that we have a decision to make. You have a decision to make about the division that might be in your life somewhere. And as you come to the Lord's table to ask Jesus to bring healing and restoration, maybe you're coming today and you're spiritually dry and you need something new in your spirit today. Be reminded of what Christ has done for us and realize that the answer is in Jesus. It's remembering who he is. It's remembering what he's done, that he's been faithful in the past and that he'll be there in the future and it's like a reset i guess that's why i say it's it's like medicine for your soul because it takes you in that moment right back to what jesus has done for you because some of you look i've been there you you get messed up on the inside and you need a moment for things to be made right am i the only one or anybody else help me out here and so communion gives you that chance Look, I went, to, I went to Haiti in 2010 with a group of pastors from, from Convoy of Hope. And uh, we, we, it was right after the earthquake. And so we went there to kind of see what the church was doing and how resources were making a difference. It's this really cool experience. And I it was near the end of the trip. I don't know when it happened. I, I either go back to this, this piece of fruit that I was given or this salad that I ate. I'm not sure which one. But I got on a plane in Port-au-Prince and I landed in Miami and somewhere between there, something new happened inside of me. It was not a good thing. Do do you know what I'm talking about without having to say it? Nod your heads with me because I'll get descriptive, okay? I landed in Miami with Hades Revenge. And in those like three or four hours of my layover in Miami, I I, I learned the facilities very well in that terminal. And then I got on the plane back to Detroit and I was miserable. Then I drove home from Detroit back to Toledo and I was miserable. And I got to my house and I was miserable. And I got up the next day and I called my doctor and I said, there is something inside of me that is not good. I need some medicine. And so I went in, saw the doctor. He asked some questions, kind of chuckled, wrote me a little script, said, you better get this, take it and go home. And I took one pill. I'm not kidding you. I took one pill and my life was changed because I needed some medicine to take what was messed up and get me back to a place where I could be right again. Do you see where I'm going with this? When you come to the Lord's table, there's nothing magical about the bread and the juice. You know what it is? You reset your spirit back to who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come at this time and they're going to prepare to serve us communion. We'll, we'll do what we practice here. They're going to distribute the elements. We ask that you'd hold on to those until everyone's been served. And then in just a few moments, we're going to share in those things together. But before they start, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And it may be that in this moment, look, for some of you, you might, you might even say, things aren't right between me and God, so, so I'm going I'm to sit this one out. Or maybe for some of you, there's no better moment to make things right between you and God than right now. It can happen in an instant where you ask God for his forgiveness and you ask him for his grace and you ask him for his restoration in your life. Maybe there's a division. You you can't fix it in this moment, but you can work on your own heart and you can deal with maybe bitterness or frustration or forgiveness that needs to happen in you. Would you let taking time to come to Jesus in this moment be like medicine for your soul? God, as we come to the Lord's table, we examine our hearts. Lord, we look to you. We trust in you. 
we thank you in Jesus' name. Ushers, you may serve. of our failures our faults the way we've disappointed you or ourselves or others you are a God that's there that's offering forgiveness and grace we thank you Jesus for your sacrifice and we're reminded of it today Paul says for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's share in the bread together. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the cup. Jesus, that you shed your blood so that division between us and God could be reconciled. And that division between us and others could be reconciled. Once you came to set us free, to bring us healing. Lord, today some of us need to begin a journey of healing in our relationship with you. Some of us need to begin a journey of healing in our relationship with others. God, it's not possible on our own. 
we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Let's share in the cup together. Can I invite you to stand with me? And uh, we're just going to conclude by singing that song. In fact, um, if you're comfortable, maybe you might want to even lift your hands. Just begin to thank him. God, thank you for what you've done. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, we praise you, Jesus. Thank you, God. things might not be right, you're the God who brings healing and restoration. Jesus, that our relationship with you can be like medicine to our soul. Thank you for the chance to remember and be restored today as we look to you. My God, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Lord, you know what's ahead of us this week. You know the things that we know. You know the things we don't know. You know how we can walk in your grace and in your love, how we can show others your love through us. So as we go, God, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.